passage this morning is Galatians chapter 3, verses 23 through 29. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Thank you, Becky. It's good to be back. My name is George, lead pastor of the church here, and I haven't been here for the last three weeks, which has been refreshing. So I'm thankful to Lawrence and Deirdre for filling in, and I'm, I'm really glad to be back. But today, we are continuing the series on um, identity, gender, and sexuality. And this week and next week, we're going to be hitting specifically on two hot-button issues. Today, gender dysphoria, um, and I'll explain what that is as we get into the sermon, and next week is homosexuality. And so I just wanted to just make a few comments. We are in significant culture wars, and uh, when I say we, our our country, um, the world, really, in a lot of ways, Um, but our goal in communicating on these topics that are central to the culture wars is not to take a particular side, not to to reflect a particular uh, political bias. Um, It is to reflect on what the scriptures would have us believe and know about issues that it speaks to. And we want to reflect the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God is going to be different than the kingdom of this world. And the positions of the world, whether right or left or in the middle or different altogether, um, they they rarely reflect the kingdom of God. And, And just as Jesus, when he was on earth, came with a different kingdom, we are, we are striving to um, be of the kingdom of Jesus Christ, to be of the kingdom of God. And so our, our goal in this is to look at these really challenging issues that are central to the hearts and minds of, of people um, and, and profound in the, str- in the struggle that, that people have with these issues and these realities. And that's why I wanted to call the sermon today the reality of gender dysphoria, um, because we, we, in our culture, have a tendency to look at these things that we, we may disagree on or the frameworks are completely different than we would typically understand. Um, and we see them first and foremost as, as, as uh, battles in this, in this culture war. And we, we fail to look at um, the realities in the lives of individual people and their experiences, and what they're feeling, and how they're progressing through life as, a, as, a, as being a part of, of a fallen world. And we've got to look at these dynamics outside of the lens of the culture war, and from the lens of the gospel, and to see what, what, what it means to be the people of God, what it means to reflect the kingdom of God in this world this, at this time. So, 
So today, gender dysphoria, next week, homosexuality. Lawrence is going to be covering that one. So to begin with, what is gender dysphoria? So gender dysphoria is the, the sense that people have when they don't feel like their gender, their understanding. So when I say gender in this sermon, I'm going to be referring to what people consider to be, um, well, there's like 78 different genders now according to some lists, but I'm going to, st we're going to stick to the traditional two, male and female. Um, they don't feel that their, that their person is consistent with the sex of their bodies. And so a person that, that may have a male body, but they feel like they're a female in their person in terms of how they think or how they understand their sense of self, that would be gender dysphoria or vice versa. And so we all see this um, dynamic in our culture. I read just a couple of weeks ago that the University of Minnesota um, is going to consider um, not addressing someone in their preferred pronoun. So if, if there's a person that is in a male body, but they sense themselves as being female and would prefer to be called a she rather than a he, if you do not refer to that person as their preferred pronoun, it's an actionable offense that may get you expelled from school or lose your job as a staff member. And so that's a, a culture war aspect, but it's also going to be, it's an employment aspect, it's a legal aspect, uh, but you've also got, again, the dynamic of the person that's in that place feeling like their body is inconsistent with their sense of self. And so that's what gender dysphoria is, the prevalence in our culture. And so um, the challenge to some degree of gender dysphoria is that there's a continuum. And so on one end of the continuum, it's a diagnosable uh, mental health problem. Because of the stress and the anxiety that people experience, because of this, of this disconnect between their sense of self and their birth sex or their, their sex body. And so, but you don't have to be um, a, a diagnosable, have a, have a diagnosable problem in terms of the mental health concern uh, to experience the, the, the more general feeling of gender dysphoria. And so from the standpoint of a mental health concern, it's about one in every 30 or 40,000 people. But from the perspective of this being something that is sensed within themselves, it's about one out of every two or 300 people. So it's not like super common, but it is prevalent enough, as we see in our culture, it's prevalent enough to where um, we probably know people that are experiencing some level of gender dysphoria, uh, and it's very likely that there are people in our own church that have or continue to experience uh, some sense of gender dysphoria. And so... The, the, there's no clear scientific explanation as to what causes uh, gender dysphoria, although there seems to be some anecdotal 
evidence that it, it has a lot to do with uh, rigid notions about what our culture has positioned over centuries and other cultures as what it means to be male or what it means to be female, and senses of not aligning with those, um, along with the challenges that come with, because a, a lot of the experiences of gender dysphoria are coming out of um, ad, the, the adolescent age group because of uh, the, a lot of the, the changes that are happening to people's bodies during that time, as well as the, the, the social cultural dynamics that are present at that age in terms of media and school and all that kind of stuff. But there's no clear scientific explanation to what causes gender uh, dysphoria. But th there is a sense also that because we have an erosion of acknowledging male and female differences, okay, which we're not gonna get into a lot here, we've covered that in the past messages, um, and an erosion of gender roles Okay, even though they've been uh, rigid or narrow, these things have been eroding to the point where it is a, it is a, there's a broad sense of, of us as a culture not being clear on what it means to be male, what it means to be female. And so this, this um, insecurity around who we are, again, especially in those adolescent years, when all of these changes are happening to our bodies and a lot of those changes are sexual in nature. Okay, so these, these, um, these, the, the fact that culturally we no longer have a way of understanding ourselves, along with we as a culture are no longer asking questions about the large things. Uh, who am I? Where am I at in this world? What is the purpose of my life? Those are not questions that our culture is asking anymore, um, but that cultures throughout Western history have consistently asked. And so we have this, this, this culture where there's, there's a, a lack of sense of identity and, and meaning, and what does it mean to be male? What does it mean to be female? And, and just for an example of some of the, the narrow rigidity of uh, uh, gender um, characteristics. Does anybody remember the uh, the show Queer Eye for the Straight Guy? Did anybody watch that? Okay, not very many of you. Do any of you, do very many of you? Oh, I'll just explain a little bit. So it was a show uh, Queer Eye for the Straight Guy, and there was these there was five gay men, and they would go and basically consult with straight guys in five different spheres food and wine, personal grooming, fashion, cultural etiquette, and design. And so the fact, that, and it was very specific, that straight guys didn't have a clue about food and wine, personal grooming, fashion, cultural etiquette, and design. And you needed a, a, um, a feminine perspective or a homosexual perspective to, to become educated on these things. And so does anybody remember uh, South Park, the, the term metrosexual. And so if you, were a, if you were a man that knew anything about food and wine, personal grooming, fashion, cultural etiquette, and design, then you were considered a metrosexual. And so you, now this is 
don't know, what, 20 years ago, Tim? I mean, I saw you nodding your head. We were, um, I did a sermon in the late 90s on sexuality in American culture, and I pulled that up. And uh, as I was preparing this week, and um, we are so far away from what I was addressing 20 years ago. It was, I mean, because now um, this, there would be, I mean, most of you hadn't heard of Queer Eye for the Straight Guy. And the fact that there was a time in our culture, and this is what is, was so profound for me, there was a time in our culture where to be a straight man meant to be clueless about these things. And so if, you're, if, you were, if you grew up in an environment where to be a straight man meant to have a certain disposition and a certain cluelessness about some things, and you grew up with a sense of, of um, some of these types of things, or you're more inclined artistically or more inclined towards music, or to, if you had those inclinations as a male but didn't fit into the stereotypes, and you're going to be thinking, well, I, I must be a female in a man's body. Because of those things being assigned to specific genders. And um, so it was crazy. It has been crazy how our culture and the church historically has defined what it means to be male or female. And that has contributed a lot to the to the confusion that exists in our time. We are living in a time where we are seeing the, the consequences across the board um, and, the, and, the, and then part of the undermining of any sort of trust in any authority structures at all in our culture because there's just been so much confusion and craziness and inaccuracies and prejudices uh, and so we are living in a time where there's just, everything's kind of up for grabs without a sense of what, the, what handles we can grab onto for determining identity and meaning in our lives. And so it, we have to go into this conversation with a sense that um, we have to be understanding of the profound I don't want to use the, the term depravity, but I want to use the term fallenness, corruption, perversion, twistedness uh, that our world is expressing. And people, individuals, are stuck in this place where there aren't handles to grab a hold of in terms of determining identity, meaning, purpose. And so it, we shouldn't be surprised. And we should be humble as we think about these things because not everyone in, this, in, this, in these contexts are people trying to destroy the biblical framework. A lot of people are just trying to figure out themselves in this, in this world. And so one of the things that I um, want to show you is a framework for thinking about gender dysphoria. And so this is from Mark Yarhouse. He also wrote the book, uh, so he wrote a book called Gender Dysphoria, and he also wrote the book uh, Homosexuality and the Christian, which, which Lawrence will be covering a little bit next week. But it's very helpful to see this, 
this concern or this issue of gender dysphoria from the lens of, of three different frameworks. Because everybody comes at it from one of these frameworks. And if you're talking to somebody about this, and they're from a different framework, you're going to have a completely different perspective on it. But if we can understand the frameworks that we're operating out of and the uh, frameworks that other people are coming from, then it enables us to get a little bit more, uh, I think, be a little bit more humble and a little bit more thorough in terms of how we're thinking about these things. So the first one is what Yarhouse calls the integrity framework. And so the integrity framework identifies the phenomenon of gender incongruence or the experience of dysphoria as confusing the sacredness of maleness and femaleness and specific resolutions as violations of that integrity. And so this is the lens or the framework that most conservative Christians would be in. There's male, there's female, and any attacks against that framework or differences to that framework of male and female um, is going to be considered like a, a violation and there's going to be this this reaction against it because there's a defensiveness about holding on to what the biblical binary is. The second, the second framework is what your house calls the disability framework. The disability framework sees gender dysphoria not as a moral issue, but as a reflection of a fallen world like other types of diseases or sicknesses or mental health issues. And so we look on it as from, this, from the standpoint of compassion, not a moral choice, whereas the integrity framework largely puts those who are stuck in gender dysphoria as making a moral choice to be there and that they could just make a moral choice to not be there. The third lens is the diversity framework, and there, and there are kind of two two perspectives in the diversity framework. The first perspective, what, what Yarhouse calls the strong one, is that there is a, an agenda to deconstruct the, the binary structures. So there's an agenda to say, no, there's not just male, there's not just female, there's a whole wide-ranging diversity of, of gender, and we've got to move away from male and female. Okay, so it's, there's an agenda behind it to deconstruct. This, the weak form highlights transgender issues as a reflection, as, reflect, as reflecting an identity and culture to be celebrated as an expression of diversity. And so there's an understanding that everybody is going to have a different sense of gender, and those things should be kind of celebrated because one of the key elements in the diversity framework is that people are finding two things. And this is really critical for us to understand. People are finding a sense of identity. So if they're experiencing gender dysphoria along the continuum, they find, and, and they don't know who they are, and they come to a point where they say, you know, really what's going on? I, I have a male body, but I'm really a female. And, and so they, they develop a strong, a strong sense of identity. And then there are communities formed around this, a transgender community. And then they then develop a sense of belonging. Whereas within their culture that sees things as more binary, they didn't fit, whether that's their family or their church or whatever, they now have a community of people that acknowledges who they are and have accepted them into their group. And so a sense of identity and a sense of community is a strong element 
in the diversity framework. And so they each have their strengths and they each have their weaknesses. The strength of the integrity framework is that it honors what God has created as male and female. Its weakness is that it fails to approach the other, it, it fails to approach the, the gender dysphoria concern and the people that are in it with compassion and mercy. The disability framework acknowledges that there is a, a, a fallen and corrupt and broken world and that people are stuck in that. So it's high on compassion and mercy. The weaknesses is that people then kind of feel like they've been labeled and have a problem. The diversity framework, the strength of it, the strength of it is that it, is, it, it acknowledges that, that people need a sense of identity and people need a sense of community. Its weakness is, is that this becomes their whole identity. And there's an agenda behind the strong form to, to undercut from a Christian perspective and from a biblical perspective to undercut what God has created as male and female and what biology affirms as, as, as male and female, which, again, we've covered in previous weeks. And so that's the lens. That is the, the kind of three different lenses to see this discussion in. And so where do we, where do we land? <laughs> how, do, how do we think about this? And the passage that I, that I thought of today, the Galatians 3 passage, I think really hits on these two important issues quite well. It says that there is no male and female once you have come to faith in Jesus Christ and have been justified in him. Now, a lot of people have used this passage to say, well, there's now no longer sort of any gender differentiation. There's no longer any sort of gender differences. There's no longer any gender roles within Scripture, which is, which is clearly not the case. There is. It's, this passage is not dealing with gender roles. This passage is dealing with where we get our sense of righteousness. And if you can remember the first message on, on what goes into the formation of a sense of self or an identity, we are all striving for what we consider to be righteousness. What is good? What does it mean to respect others? What does it mean to earn the respect of others? What is the good life? We are all in pursuit of righteousness. And what Galatians argues is that we cannot develop a sense of righteousness on external things. We cannot develop a sense of righteousness on our morality. We cannot develop a sense of righteousness in our gendered bodies. Okay? And, and historically, across many cultures, there has been a an elevation of the male and a, a, a weakening of, of the female. And what Paul is saying here is that, listen, there, there is no differentiation between male and female. There is no differentiation in ethnicities. There is no differentiation in color. There is no differentiation in our moral standing. We cannot develop our own sense of identity 
our own sense of, of who we are as people outside of the person of Jesus Christ. And it is Jesus Christ that gives us our sense of identity. I don't get, I don't get a good sense of myself because I'm a man. That's not where I'm supposed to put my strength and security in. I don't get my strength of, well, I am not supposed to. I'm sure there's all sorts of hidden unconscious things that I'm not aware of. I'm not supposed to get my sense of strength and security as being white. I'm not supposed to get my strength of sense and security and well-being because I'm an American. I get my strength of security, value, identity, purpose, meaning from one thing. And that is fully the person of Jesus Christ that now lives in me and has regenerated and renewed me and made me a new creation. So that's, that is where, it, this is such a broad and powerful and, and complex issue. I've got 40 minutes. And there's many things to discuss beyond it. But we as Christians have to start there. And then Paul encourages us. He says, we must no longer look at each other according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And I believe that would also include how we view and think about those who haven't yet believed in Jesus Christ. We don't identify people by the external things that they express, that they say, that they do, their bodies, their skin color, their nationalities. Where are they at in regard to Jesus Christ? And then Paul goes on to say, so therefore, if you have, if you have believed in Jesus Christ, if you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, and so what does it mean to, to put your faith in Jesus Christ? Well, to put your faith into something means that you are now considering it to be true. And so there are some things that we have to stop believing are true and start believing that are true. We don't find our identity and righteousness in our gendered body. It's not found in our sense of gender. It's not found in our sexual experiences or sexual expression. And throughout history and in certainly the biblical story, one of the greatest challenges, the greatest idolatries is sexuality, the worship of sex and the experience of sex as being what is going to give us our sense of meaning and fulfillment. Our righteousness is not something that we can earn, achieve, or grasp. It is something that is given to us by God through the finished work of Jesus Christ and the placing of his spirit inside of us that makes us a new creation. We have to believe that, that regardless of whether we're experiencing gender dysphoria or not, we have to come to a place where we believe that who I am and my confidence, my strength, my hope, my sense of meaning, my sense of purpose comes from Jesus Christ and his complete righteousness now becoming mine. And that's not just a, that's not just a, a, a moral understanding. 
okay, about, oh, now I've done everything perfect as Jesus Christ has done everything perfect. It is not, it is the full expression of what it means to be a human created by God, to image him and to enjoy him and to enjoy each other. It, Jesus Christ is the full expression of what it means to be human. He's the new Adam. We have to believe that the shame and guilt in our lives from the sins that we've committed or from, the, for, from being victims of the sins against us, the shame is gone. The guilt is gone. Christ has paid the penalty. He has cleansed us. So I'm no longer after a sense of my gender in order to remove the, the shame or the guilt or the insecurity. And you can say, well, how, you know, you can say these things, but how do they become experienced? How do, I, how do we develop that sense? And this is why it is such a, it's so key to understand that, that the Spirit of God has been put into us. The Spirit of Jesus Christ has been put into us to transform our emotional lives, to transform our hearts, to transform our minds. And, and, we, we engage or activate that spirit that is indwelling us through faith and by moving forward on what the Word of God says to be true and stop believing and stop putting our trust. And that's what enables us to set aside sin because at some point we start believing that, that these sins are the means through which we are going to experience a sense of righteousness. You know, Joel and Josie, no longer were experiencing uh, joy and fulfillment in the binge watching of TV. And so they got to a point where like, you know, it's really not doing it for me anymore. Everything, everything, including brunches on Sunday morning, will eventually let you down. And, and we know that. We know that to be true. But the presence of Jesus Christ in us doesn't let us down. And he will make that transformation of mind and our feelings and our heart as we approach him in faith, believing that he will do that work in us through the spirit that he has given us. So we... So that's, that's that sense of identity. And, and we as a church have the responsibility then of, of manifesting a sense of belonging. Because the passage ends up, you are now descendants of God, children of God, and co-heirs with Abraham. Which meant that you are now a part of the family of God. Your sense of belonging is not a, a sense of belonging through a community that has a sexual or a, a gender understanding that you do. No more than a sense of community doesn't come from a men's group or a women's group. And traditional, you know, so the men's and women's ministries have been, have contributed to some of these rigid stereotypes of what it means to be male or female. 
we don't get our sense of belonging from these isolated, differentiated groups. We have one common identity, and that is we are a children of God through Jesus Christ. He has given us his identity. And that makes me a part of his family, a family with one unifying thread, Jesus Christ and the Spirit of God that indwells us and makes us one with God and each other. And that means he is bringing a lot of different kinds of people. And one of the challenges that Lawrence has addressed this, one of the challenges that we have as a church and conservative churches in general um, is that we, and I'm not speaking specifically of Twin Cities Church, we tend to put these sexual sins into a, a category all to themselves and that there is little room for grace for those of us, all of us. We just tend to hide it better. All of us have sexual sin. All of us have, have guilt and shame and insecurity associated with our gendered bodies, our sense of gender. So we as a church need to stop setting aside sexual sin, gender-related sins, as these untouchable things, and we need to bring them into the sphere scope, uh, the, to, the, to the complete scope of grace that Christ gives them. And so we have to be ready to engage in these conversations, not just from the framework of the integrity, but from the framework of understanding that this is a fallen world and from the framework of understanding that, you know, people are in search of identity and a sense of belonging. Um, and whether it's their gender identity that's given that or some other thing, we need to acknowledge that that's what people are in need of and help them to see and enter into conversation where we want to be a part of that process with them and not just exclude. And we have to create a broader scope of what it means to be male and female. Now, Deirdre did a sermon on what it means to be female. I did a sermon on what it means to be male. And if you look at, if you look at the qualities and if you look at some of the characters throughout Scripture, there's a lot of congruence between the two. A lot of congruence between the two. Men, we need to recognize, this is what it means to be male, we need to recognize that we have vulnerabilities in our, in our independence. We sacrificially work to provide for women, children, the weak, and the poor. We steward the gifts of God with care. We protect women, children, and the weak. We look to the welfare of the next generation. These are broad things. Women recognize their worth in being built to create community. Women, do you realize that you are the bringers of life into this world? Deirdre had the, the great points on what it means to be a sustainer as a woman. Women, you, you give life. You give life and you create community. You sacrificially work, as men do, to sustain and care for men, children, and the weak. 
and the poor through life-giving nature and life-giving qualities. You are to steward the gifts of God with care. You are to look to the welfare of the next generation. Those are the uniquenesses around men and women from the biblical standpoint. Have nothing to do with sports. Have nothing to do with fine dining, culture, art, music, all of these kinds. Those are not gendered things in the scripture. So we, we have to, as, as, a, as image, maker, image bearers of God and as his kingdom and his people, to recognize that, that how we think about what it means to be male and female needs to be biblical and not, and not cultural. And the last thing I just want to say is if you, are, if you are experiencing some level of gender dysphoria, and, and you know, I, the, just a few issues ago of, of The Atlantic magazine, it's a huge article, but it's looking at the challenges that we are now facing as a culture after several decades of, of kind of jumping on the identity um, diversity framework and really pushing people along the pathway of transitioning hormone therapy and, and surgeries, um, what, what they're seeing now is that this, the pendulum has swung too far and that there's a lot of people that went through in their youth a lot of very invasive processes to conform their bodies to their sense of gender. Now that they've grown older, they have a sense that they are who they were born and the bodies that they were born into. And so it's, it's just a whole level of challenges and just kind of explaining we are at a place in our culture where we really don't know how to deal with this very well. And so I don't want to just take a few moments to make some glib comments, but here's what I would encourage you to do if you're, um, if you're here and experiencing some sort of gender dysphoria. Open up about it and talk with people that you can trust. Talk to some of the elders. Talk to your house church leaders. Enter into this process there's probably been something along the way in your life as recorded in a lot of the stories that, that Yar House depicts in this Atlantic magazine. Somewhere along the way, something, something significantly challenged you or traumatized you in regard to your sense of gender and your body. And opening up and talking and exposing that and, and renewing your mind through the spirit and through the word and through the fellowship and the love of people uh, is the best place to start in that process. Let me pray.